I want to ask you a question to consider, all of you here and those worshiping online, thanks for joining us online. What do you think builds unity in a church? What do you think builds unity in a church? What do you think builds unity at your home, in, in your home? What do you think builds unity in, in your business, if you, if you own a business, or just simply your place of work? What do you think brings unity to a nation? What do you think brings unity to your school, if you're a student or a teacher or a coach? I think the answer is the same for all of those, and I want you to consider what you think that is and allow the text to speak to us today, and it will become quite obvious by the time we get to the end what really, truly builds unity in anything, in anything at all. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn to, or if you brought your journal, turn to chapter two. We're in chapter two today in our series. We're finally moving out of chapter one, and any Sunday, anytime you hear scripture spoken, you've got to know that the text always has context, right? You can't pull the text out void of its context, and that's where, that's where weird things happen. That's where cults form, and that's where just bad theology is formed. And so I want to read the text, and I want to wrap it and remind us of where we were last week and where we're going next week. So chapter 2, verse 1 says, If there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So in case you missed last week, here's the, here's the context right in front of where we are today. Because remember, chapters and verses, all that was added late, later. This is just a flow of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote while under house arrest in Rome to the church he started in Philippi, which remember was the first church plant in Europe. So Philippi, little, although it's little, is a big deal, right? Significant. Well, in verse 27 of last week, he said this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Do you remember that? Let your life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel or reflective of the gospel. And what we agreed on last week was what he was saying is there is a unity in here, meaning this, that what I believe has to be congruent with what I do and live. Like, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I mean, there's a wholeness, uh, there's a congruency, there's an integrity about what I believe and how I live. But today, in 2 verse 1, he's going to talk about a unity not like that, but a unity like this. So it starts here, and then it continues this, this way. And so there's this joy of seeing that our unity in gospel is not something that that we made. Justin referenced it a moment ago in Ephesians 4. We maintain it. Listen to Ephesians 4 again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, we are to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. 
So we don't, we don't, we didn't come up with this idea of being unified. It's a positional reality. It's a theological truth that in Christ, we have unity. Like we're born into it. When we're born again, we're born again into it uh, that we are, we're family. We're not on the same team. Teams constantly divide us, right? Our sports loves, uh, this love, that love, those things divide us. But just as a child that is born into or adopted into a home, they don't join Team Teague, right? They join Family Teague. And that's profoundly different. But we got to do something with it. I just had the thought of an illustration between services. If somebody gives me a plant because they know I'm a, a plant lover like you guys, you know, I didn't make the plant and they, they didn't make it either, frankly. God made the plant. But what do I do with the plant? I make sure I plant it in the yard where, uh, according to the plant, if it's a shade plant, I plant it in the shade. If it's a sun plant, I plant it there. If it's a high water, or low water, you know, you do all those things so the plant has a chance to thrive and prosper and flourish. I'm maintaining the plant. I have a little tree that um, Ann Barnes gave me years ago. And I'm, it's still there. It's right when I get out of my car. It's this little like baby tree. And I've maintained it through the years. And that's what you do with something given to you of value. And can you think of anything of more value than the unity and the precious, beautiful body family of Christ, right? And so in chapter two, verse one, these four verses are one sentence in the Greek language. And there's this, this flow of what he's saying to us where he goes, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So when you see that, the big old if, it kind of jumps out at you like it's this thing that might be the case. Like, hey, if you guys are doing great over there, like if these things are true, then rock on, you know? And if not, then he's gonna rebuke them or, or something. This word, if, if, translates just as easily and often as, as sense, which is a real game changer. Paul, Paul is not speaking to them about possibilities, but about, about realities. Like, since these things are true, since the encouragement we have in Christ, the comfort we have from love, the participation, that koinonia, communion in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy. The, these, these are four realities that we have in Christ. Now you might look at a thing or a church in this case and say, I don't, you know, I don't know if I see those or not. Whether we see them or not, they are theological gifts and realities given to us, right? And just as there are four of them, we're gonna see now four responsibilities on how to maintain those truths. And this is interesting to me because the only command in the text today is this. It's to complete my joy. It's the only imperative verb in the four verses. Everything else are all these nouns and the participles that are like supporting, saying you're gonna make me happy by doing these things. The joy is gonna come about by doing these things. And it's an improbable joy. 
So when you think about what brings unity to home, to a nation, to a business, to a school, to a church, what is it? Watch the text and listen to the text and see if you can find it. So he says, I want you to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So let's start, let's start there. there. There are three out of the four that are the same, but it doesn't look like it on the surface. Look at mind and mind, the first and the fourth there. You see it? It's the same word for neod. It has the sense of to think, to think. And so often when we think about bringing unity into a body or into anything, it's driven by emotion. Like, I feel like you're my brother, you know? Well, you know, some days I'm gonna feel really high on that. And other days I'm gonna feel a little bit low on that based on emotions because emotions fail us, right? And there's a goodness and a strength and something substantive that he's giving us to say two out of the four, it's actually three out of the four. Think about this because full accord is a word used one time in the New Testament. And it means to think. <laughs> so three out of four he is saying this improbable joy will settle on him and them as they think deeply about truth and about what really matters. Not so much like how are you and I getting along, how are we one, but thinking first about what oneness looks like. And that oneness in the body is not the same as sameness. What's so cool about a church is that we're so different we're so different. We're like this stained glass window. And even though it might feel like we're, we're, we're you know, the same, we're not. There are nations represented in the room. There are ethnicities represented in the room. There are theological backgrounds represented in the room. There's all kinds of things that make us different on the surface, but in the, like in the heart, in the core of things, as I think about it, as I have one mind that you have the same mind, in full accord, one thought, we're really one because of someone, because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection given to us, and we begin to think those thoughts. And if you remember back in verse 27 when he said, like, I want you to uh, walk worthy of the gospel, what was the remainder of that verse? He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I hear that you're standing firm with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The unity inside and with each other is the gospel. It's Jesus that makes us family. You can pop up out of here and go down the street and catch the 11 o'clock service at some church and you won't know anybody in there. Maybe you'll see a friend from work or whatever, but they're family too. It's the same deal. We're all on the same team. We're just different flavors and expressions, right? Of the same team, of the family of God. That's the goodness of this. And so celebrate this truth that unity is not uniformity. You, you can create uniformity, right? Like when the military at the outset, shaved head, same uniform. There's a uniformity. But unity that causes people to take a hill and to die for something, it doesn't come from a uniform or a shaved head. It comes from a passion inside. You believe in the same mission. 
right? That's true militarily and it's true spiritually. Like I would go, I would run through a brick wall for you, right? When you hear players on a team say that about their coach, like I'd run through a brick wall for that man. It's because there's a unity that's been forged through adversity and through highs and through lows and good and bad. And it's like, we're one. And Paul is saying, complete my joy by having the same mind, the same love in full accord, one thought, and in this, this oneness. That's what matters the most. But why the mind? Why the mind? I alluded to it a moment ago. Their emotions come and go. And this is what brings into play like Romans 12 is so important that we renew our minds with truth and that the truth defines reality. Because as we, we live in a world that does not celebrate the humility that we're gonna see in the next verse, our world celebrates pride and arrogance and, you know, I'm gonna climb the ladder and I'm gonna, you know, come, you know, I'm gonna push you out of the way. I hope you can climb with me, but... I don't really care because I'm gonna get mine and I hope you can get yours. And that's just such a shallow, selfish, antithetical life to the gospel. And so what he's saying, you gotta you got start here by thinking, thinking, thinking well because as a man thinketh, so is he, right? And so as we think and we're renewed by our truth, our emotions will follow suit with that. And guess what follows that? our feet, our hands, our life. So we think biblically, we renew our minds with truth. It begins to affect our emotions and that begins to affect the way that I live and I move and have my being and the way I do life with you right here at church and at home and at a school or in my nation. And you know, Jesus said a house divided won't stand. And that's what's terrifying when you watch American life right now is how divided we are and how the enemies of this nation are celebrating this divide between Democrat and Republican and the divisiveness in our nation. Because it doesn't matter if it's huge like the United States or if it's tiny like your family, unity really matters. Because when you're one, you can get through anything. But when you're divided, a lesser foe can take you down. That's why the Roman Empire did not fall from without, but fell from within, right? And so these principles that Paul is teaching, they, they're, so, they're so theologically profound, but they're so practically expressed. Be of the same mind, having the same love, all of these things really matter. The answer to the question that I ask you in the opening, it's humility. Humility is what brings unity. It's not a common mission statement, which is terribly important for a business or a church or a nation. Like we're, we're going this direction. Those things matter. But it's humility in the group. It's humility in the people that makes this come together. And what, what he's gonna do now is he's gonna shift gears in verses three to four to basically say this is how you do it. But it's like, do this, don't do that, twice. Say it, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. So let's, let's just read it together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. 
How many of you grew up on the King James or still are living in the King James? It just, because conceit is used one time in the New Testament and it's in the King James. And I'm, I don't use the King James, but this, this is one of those spots where King James is really good. This word for conceit is, it's kenodoxia, it's, it's empty glory. Because the King James says vainglory here. Vainglory, like oh, vainglory. The empty glory kind of resonates a little better, right? And he's saying, look, you're not all that. And, and this, is one, this is one place that humility comes from. When you preach the gospel to yourself and you remind yourself that I'm a sinner saved by grace, it was nothing in me that would merit the kindness of God. It was all about him. It is all about him. It always will be about him. And that by his kindness, he led me to repentance. By his kindness, he lead, leads you or led you to rep- repentance. And so when we recognize I, I'm not all that, there's a groundedness about that. There's a humility that comes from that. I don't mean that you're counter to the value and the worth that you have in Christ, that you're an imago day, or if you're in Christ, you're an imago Christi, image bearer of God, image bearer of Jesus. You have incredible value and worth. I'm not saying counter to that. I'm just saying those things are true because of him, because of his extravagant, fierce love for you. So he says to us, don't roll that way. Don't, don't live by ambition and like you've got to strive to get ahead and exalt yourself and have arrogance and conceit. And he says, so if you're not going to do that, do this. Check it. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, if you're like rolling in Philippi and you're hearing this letter read, that is a really countercultural statement because the Greeks did not look at humility as a virtue. We, I mean, we, we don't either, really, if you're honest, culturally. But even more so here, if the Greeks were quite proud, okay? And if you weren't a Greek, you were a barbarian, <laughs> right? And, and so there was this real, like, we're, we're Greek and you're all scary, barbarian, pagan, right? And so when the apostle Paul writing from house arrest says, I want you to go down that road. It's like, huh? Because when, when Greece conquered and they brought in as, as captives and made them slaves, barbarians and slaves were here. In fact, the word Used is, was, is used in secular literature of when the Nile River ran low, like, lo, like you're down here. See, if you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, you, you, you've, you've renewed your mind for years and years and years maybe. Like that's a good thing. Like that's good, right? Like we humble ourselves when we do that, when we consider others more significant than ourselves, it doesn't mean that you're a worm and that you don't matter. It's not an either or, it's a both and. So you start from the position that says, I have value and dignity as a human because of God the Father. 
but I'm gonna consider your life as more significant than mine. I'm gonna put your needs first. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. We need to look to our own interests, which four, verse four says. We need to have self-care for our mental health, our, our spiritual health, and our physical health. It's like, you know, the first time you heard the lady on the airplane or the guy on the airplane go, hey, in, you know, in case something goes wrong, the mask are gonna drop, grab the mask and put it on. You're like, that feels so selfish. Like, I need to help my kid. But the principle is, you can't help them if you pass out. So get the oxygen and then help the people around you. The same truth is in play spiritually here. Take care of yourself. Renew your mind with truth. And you're mentally and spiritually and physically, all, all those things. But from that... Don't stop. Man, I think that's where we're getting into trouble is we pause there. Like, me, 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 me. I'm going to be like the self-improvement king. And I'm just going to get better, 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 better. And like you hear needs around, you're like, quiet, I'm trying to get better. Right? Well, that's, that's not a biblical way to live. And so he says, so let each of you look not only, here it is. Again, not either or, but both and. Look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. My mom was married to my stepdad for a long time before he passed, and he had Alzheimer's for seven years that we know, know. And she cared for him herself for most of that to the very, very end when she just couldn't. And uh, it affected her own health, and, and it, was, it was hard on her. But along the way, I remember asking her one day, I was like, Mom, why do you, why do you go over to the hospital and do that? Because she, she was a, I don't know if we still call them this, a candy striper, you know, the, the you know, volunteer at the hospital. And um, she would go to Wake Medical there in Raleigh and, 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 and go serve. And, and she was doing everything she could just to survive, it, being alone with her. He was a, a good bit older and, and then he had Alzheimer's and and she said, you know, uh, she, uh, there were two layers of this. She said, on one layer, she said, um, it helps keep me sane. It just, to get out of the house and to go serve outside, it just helps keep me sane. But the other reason that she articulated, and I'll just phrase as, you know, it's just good and right to serve others. And, and when you get out of your own world, you know, it reminds you everybody's got stuff going on. And, and when we get myopic and it's all about my interest and it's just me and like what's happening with my crew and it's just all tunnel visioned, we're not thinking about the interest of others. Everybody in the room's got stuff going on different layers and levels, everybody. Relationships with your kids and things or things at work or your marriage, health issues. You could just fill in a bunch of stuff. So that's not gonna go away, right? So we can choose to just tunnel vision and take care of myself in isolation, which is doomed for failure. Or we can, with our stuff, be open to Loving others around us who are going through stuff too. Because remember, when we humble ourselves and when we lower ourselves, like if I'm standing in a room of like-hided people or even people shorter than me, 
when I lower myself in humility, all of a sudden I'm, I'm looking up at people that I wasn't looking up at before. Like, and it's like symbolic of value and worth. Like, oh, I see you. I mean, that's the first step, right? I just see you. You're not invisible to me. Lexi's 5'3", I guess, uh, our youngest daughter, and she was standing on the stairs the other day, and she was like on step three or four, and I was hugging her goodbye, and I was like, oh my gosh, you're so tall. You know, and she was loving it, looking down at daddy. And then I've got a six foot, four and a half son-in-law who I feel like I'm shrinking every time I hug him because he's so tall. And so the, the other day, he was on the down step, Remember on the back porch, and I was like, well, this is what it feels like to look down at you, right? <laughs> it just felt different because perspective changes things. Perspective shapes a lot. And spiritually, when we, when we consider and we, we, through our, like people aren't just gonna get taller on their own. Their height increase symbolically value comes when I choose to lower myself and to look up at them and to remind myself, you matter. I see you. That's the first step. The second is, how do you know their interest? What do you think? Ask them. Ask them. So when you say, how are you doing? I'm not asking for the, you know, the courtesy of, I'm doing great. Living the dream. All those things you say as you pass it. But like, no, no, no. If you can, and you can't ask such things in passing at Starbucks, but if you have a moment and it's private, you could say, how are you really? How can I pray for you? Is there anything I can do to serve you? Is there anything I can do to help you? Sincerely. That's different. And that's what makes us different than anything else. We're not the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club or this team or that corporation. We're not an organization. We're an organism. An organism is a living thing. The body of Christ that you and I live in, we're brothers and sisters. That was, that's what makes this unique. We can talk about the family that some basketball teams call themselves or the brotherhood that some people call themselves and all these things. That's all fun and well and good, but all those things are dividers. The, things, the thing that makes us one, the thing that makes us unified is humility. Isn't that a great reminder? I read this study this week of a guy named Bernard Rimland who worked as the director of the Institute for Child Behavior Research. And I shared this with you because I always get a kick out of when science or social science proves or validates the gospel. Because you're like, oh, we could have told you that. Could have saved you a bunch of money. But listen to what he did. This, this was the deal. Everybody in the study was asked to list 10 people in their life and uh, to, to mark happy or not happy. So for us, we'd say joy or not joyful, right? And here's his definition. He said, a stable tendency to devote one's time and resources to one's own interest and welfare and unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for others. Okay? So there's the definition. Like, it's all about me. I'm not gonna inconvenience myself for somebody else. And so in categorizing the results, he found that all the friends in the 10 that were labeled unhappy were also 
selfish. People were happy, were labeled unselfish. So he wrote this. Those whose activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. He said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. (laughs) Who said that? (laughs) Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. So the path, the path to joy is humility. The path to joy is I'm going to consider you. And somehow that brings me joy. We're fed the lie that do all the things that you can for yourself and you'll find happiness in that. And it just falls short. It's a, it's a failed premise. Here's one example of how you could find joy knowing that our decade goal is to plant or replant 25 churches. One of our replant partners is Life Church up in um, South End. And on the 24th, they're going to have a serve day. You know, gardening and painting and this and that. And, you know, imagine, imagine, it works both ways. But imagine on their side of the fence as a church of 100 or 200, 300, I don't know, of a bunch of us just rolling in on Saturday. You know, take your dogs. They didn't ask me to say this, but like take your dogs, take music, like uh, unpack on that green lawn and paint and move shrubs and build things inside and pray for folks that are there. They're going to feel so encouraged, but so are you. So are we because we get to taste what it feels like to consider the interest of others, right? It's like the, the Calvary has shown up and it's like, oh, wait, wait. We're on the same team. We're, on the, we're a part of the big C. And so all of the littles and the bigs and the in-between churches, when we connect, when we consider each other, there's joy in that. There's hope in that. So I want us to pray over three things and let you respond to everything that I just said. Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you that the secret, the not-so-secret truth now of unity in anything starts with my own personal humility to think properly, to renew my mind with truth, to see myself as who I am and others who they are, and that we are all loved by you, fiercely loved by you. So, friend, I want to ask you this one first truth. Is there a promise in the text today that really jumped out at you, that encouraged you? A hopeful promise, something that just really resonated with you. Would you talk to the Father for a moment about that? Secondly, is there, is there a truth that the Holy Spirit just really convicted you about? Maybe, maybe in context of, gosh, I've just been a little self-absorbed and I haven't thought about others. Humility just has not been on my mind. It's just more about getting ahead for myself and whatever, whatever. 
If that's the case, would you talk to the Father for a moment? lastly is there a is there an action step that you're going to take something like just the Lord spoke to you and if not maybe he will right now that the Holy Spirit would prompt you to do something because of this something tangible today to bring you unity in your life right here in this church and all the other places but starting with humility what are you going to do what are you going to do because of that Listen to the Holy Spirit for a moment. Write it down if you you know. But let's listen for a moment.